Thank you, choir. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 9 this morning. Begin towards the end of the chapter. The song the choir just sang was very rich in a lot of biblical themes that we've been looking at uh, lately in terms of living in the time of the fulfillment of God's promises. So a time in which there is tribulation, but the time of the kingdom. The time when the church is called to be the witness to Christ, prepare the way of the Lord, and as Ephesians says, to be the fullness of his body here uh, in this world. So very rich theological themes uh, in that song. I enjoyed that. Also, I know uh, many of you like to keep up with how our former intern, Dale Hagwood, is doing. If you forgot, he's an App State grad. So he's doing great. He's very happy. I'm sure he'll preach with great enthusiasm this morning. So Romans chapter 9, and let me read to us from verses 30 and into chapter 10, verse 4. One of those uh, sections where uh, the chapter break could have shifted a wee bit. So we'll start at verse 30. That really begins the next section. Romans 9, beginning at verse 30. What then shall we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help once again. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the revealer. You are the teacher. And thank you for Jesus Christ, as we've read in the passage already, the culmination of the law. So I pray this morning, as we read this passage and we think about Israel seeking so zealously for something but not obtaining it, Lord, grant by your Spirit that this morning we would seek the right thing and find it as you promised, that we would focus our eyes on Christ, help us to seek him, the the righteousness and the life that is in him. And to know you. And may these, you have, Father, again, you've given Christ to reveal uh, who God is, the Spirit to teach us. So may that be at work even now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the beginning of another school year and already made a reference to football. But another fall sport that's cranking up is cross country. And many of you, or some of you at least, have over the past uh, week or two, maybe you ran in your first race of the season, or others of you told me your grandchildren are involved in cross-country and you've gone to a race. Well, cross-country is a long-distance running sport. And like other sports, there are preparations you have to make 
in order to increase your chances of success. So when you run distance running, you, you wear a lightweight uniform. You don't wear football pads or a heavy, bulky uniform. You want to be able to move, and you wear running shoes, not baseball cleats or other shoes uh, like that. You wa- drink a lot of water when you run a race. You avoid uh, certain foods, heavy foods. You don't want to run on a full stomach. If you want to succeed... There are certain things you have to do, and even more importantly, there might be certain things you don't do, things you lay aside in order to succeed. Well, in the passage today, Paul uses the imagery of a race. His language moves in the direction of racing as he describes the pursuit of salvation. Notice he refers to Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, and yet they've obtained it, in contrast to Israel, who did pursue or chase the law, but they didn't obtain their goal, the finish line. So you've got a group of people who are running vigorously in a race, and yet they fail to cross the finish line, whereas those who weren't even competing win the prize. Now, what kind of a competition is that? Why such bizarre results? Well, once again, Paul's answer has a lot to do with God's grace and with Israel's refusal to cooperate with God's purposes. We saw both of those themes in the first part of Romans chapter 9. We're going to see them again as we move into this section, because Israel wouldn't surrender certain things, they could not obtain their prize. And so what we have to do as we come to a text like this is we ask ourselves, okay, is there anything I'm refusing to surrender that keeps me from obtaining Christ? And it could be something that Israel was prone to or something that the Gentiles are prone to. We'll talk about what that might be in a minute. But we all have things we cling to and they can interfere with our pursuit of Jesus. So let's listen to this passage then which shows us or it assures us really that in order to obtain Jesus, there are things we must surrender. And three things in particular emerge from These verses. Here's the first. We must surrender our misguided pursuits. Which is not to say every pursuit in your life is misguided. It's what are the pursuits that may be misguided? And how do we surrender them? Well, Paul begins verse 30 with this question. What then shall we say? This is him responding to what he's just said in Romans 9, what we rehearsed in the previous two messages where Paul looks at this surprising turn in salvation history where many Gentiles are embracing Jesus as Lord while Israel is missing out on the culmination of God's purposes for them. Again, how do you explain such a surprising turn of events? Well, part of the answer is God's Sovereign purposes in salvation. God has chosen to reduce Israel to a remnant in order to show mercy to many Gentiles. We'll get an idea of what that remnant is when we get into Romans 11. But for now, it's smaller than one might expect. And that is God's sovereign purpose. He reduces Israel 
in order to show mercy to many Gentiles. Well, now Paul is going to give us another part of the answer. More information. He's going to fill out his answer to why Israel has gotten off track. And he's not going to, in any way, minimize God's sovereign grace. But he will focus perhaps more on Israel's errors in their pursuit of salvation. And we see these ideas in the rest of verse 30 and in verse 31. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. So Paul sets up a contrast, and he'll repeat these in the sections to follow. You've got Israel, who pursued the law, but failed to obtain their goal. So one group, and then you have the Gentiles, who were not seeking righteousness, but have obtained it. So so here's one group, they receive a gift... They're not even looking for, and the other group fails to obtain what they pursue. Let's let's zoom in on both of these groups, starting with the Gentiles. Paul says they did not pursue righteousness. And with those words, Paul is going to reach back to the very opening section of Romans. Remember the first chapter where Paul indicts humanity for not living in accordance with with God's creational purposes. Humanity as a whole does not fulfill the creation purpose of worshiping God the creator and living in his world according to his righteous design. We are all like Adam and Eve. We like to substitute our way of doing things for God's. All of humanity is prone to that error. So Paul's reaching back to that when he talks about the Gentiles not pursuing righteousness. And he's also reaching back to what he just said in Romans 9. That the Gentiles were not looking to join the covenant people of God. That that just wasn't something that drove the Gentiles for the most part. They, They didn't have the law. They didn't have these covenants. They didn't know about these promises. They weren't hoping for the Messiah to come. That They weren't seeking those things. But God, in his sovereign mercy, through Christ, revealed himself to the Gentiles. And now many Gentiles are submitting to the lordship of Christ. They are joining the people of God. They're joining this story of God reclaiming the nations through Jesus Christ. And so they find themselves members of God's people. They have a right standing with God. God has forgiven them of their disobedience, their transgression, and sin. And how has all of this come to them? By grace through faith. And Israel, on the other hand, They were pursuing the law as the way of righteousness, but they have not obtained their goal. See, Israel had the law, but they approached the law and they said, okay, we will use this law as a means of gaining a right standing with God, as a means of declaring that we are God's covenant people, as a way of maintaining their identity. As Rome, or excuse me, as Deuteronomy 6.25 promises, and it will be righteousness for us 
If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. That was Israel's pursuit. Now, at this point, though, you may wonder, but wait a minute. Why is that a problem? Why is it a problem to try to keep the law if the law demands that one keep it? I mean, after all, when God came to Israel at Mount Sinai, he didn't say, okay, do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? You know, you can try to keep the law and be righteous, or you can try to just believe in me. And when they said, we want to keep the law, God said, no, that's not the answer I was looking for. Is God playing games with Israel? No, he gave them the law. He told them to keep it. So why does Paul critique them for doing that? We have to recall Paul's argument in Romans 7, and the big picture of the Old Testament. Yes, God gave Israel the law, and that's good. But the law also shows us something about ourselves that is ugly. Something that the law can't fix. Something that only God can solve, and that he has now solved in Jesus Christ. And this comes out right at the beginning. God gives them the law in the book of Exodus, and soon they make a golden calf. If they're looking at their history, they would realize, okay, God knows what he's doing giving us the law, but there is a problem. We can't keep that law, and we should submit then to God as the way of salvation. And that is what Paul does in Romans 7 and 8. He says, look what the law did for you. Now, what the law couldn't do, God has done through Christ. And I think Paul justly, legitimately critiques Israel. Why? Because they're only looking at part of the picture. They're looking at the law, but they're not looking at the full picture either of the Old Testament or what God has now done in Christ, that God has now fulfilled the law through Jesus. Sin's punishment has been laid on him and he is the way of salvation. And Israel should seek him instead of continuing in her own pursuits. So as we bring that to our lives, we would ask ourselves the question, okay, which, which am I more like? Am I more like a Gentile? Maybe you are pursuing a way of life that, that's somewhat independent of God. You're just hearing those commands and thinking, no, that, that's a restrictive way. I don't want to go down that way. I need to find happiness and satisfaction. And Paul says, if you're trying to do that without God, if you're trying to do that your own way, it's a dead-end path. Outside of Christ, it, it leads to wrath. It leads to destruction. There is no good way to run away from God and his righteousness. And what Jesus has come to do is is rescue us, rescue the world from those kinds of pursuits to get the nations back in line with God's way of running the world through submission to Jesus as Lord. And by grace and faith, you can be a part of that program. So are, are we more like Gentiles or, at times, are you more like Israel? Maybe we have this idea of, okay, this is good. Uh, This is what God wants me to do. This is what will satisfy God. And you keep pursuing that, even if it doesn't match God's big picture revelation in Christ. Okay, this is what Jesus is all about. This is who Jesus is as I read the Gospels. This is what obedience to him looks like. And God is saying, I want you to get in line with that that program, you're like, no, 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 this is what you want me to do. This is what you want me to focus on. That, That won't fool God. And I, and I wonder if it even fools your own conscience or if deep down you know, okay, that is not what God 
wants me to do. God shows you what is good in Christ. And through him, he offers us peace with him. So if our pursuits are misguided, we have to surrender them. Second, then, we must surrender our human presumption. So after stating that Israel did not obtain her goal of righteousness by means of the law, Paul asks a follow-up question in verse 32. Why not? His answer, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So his question is, why did Israel fail to obtain their goal of the law's promised righteousness? Where did they get off track? Why didn't they cross the finish line? And his answer really has two parts. First, because they sought the law's righteousness by works instead of by faith. Now again, this overlaps with what we just said. We just answered the question, but doesn't the law demand works? And again, yes, in and of itself it does. And it offers righteousness to anyone who can keep it. But when you put the law within the entire context of the Old Testament, when you put the law within the entire context of God's salvation history, then you see the law is not the ultimate answer to the problem of human sin. Again, we've said this numerous times, but before there was a law, there was Abraham. And Abraham was justified by faith. That sets a precedent that nothing can change. And the law has to be understood in the light of Abraham's faith, not the other way around. So just reading the storyline of the Old Testament would, would tip us off to that. And furthermore, God warned in the law itself, Israel, you will not find righteousness through obedience. Your only hope is God's work on your behalf. Just one example of that. If you were to go read Deuteronomy 27 through 30, chapters 27 and 28 and 29, they warn Israel, these are the curses that are going to come upon you for your disobedience to the law. But when you get into Deuteronomy 30, God says, okay, now after you go through all those curses, I will regather you and I will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And by the way, in the next chapter, or or later in chapter 10, Paul will quote from Deuteronomy 30. God wants Israel to see, look at the story, follow the big themes, follow this thread, and you will see that your salvation is in God through Christ. In Israel, you've missed that big picture. you got tunnel vision on the law. And that then leads to the second part of Paul's answer. Why did they stumble? One, because of their tunnel vision. And then verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame because Israel was so fixated on their pursuit of righteousness by works, they failed to embrace the solution that God provided. They're like a runner who took their eyes off the path at that key moment and tripped over a marker, one that had actually been placed to show you the way to go. By not looking at the path properly, 
They tripped over the solution. And let's dig in just for a second. This Old Testament citation. This will give us a real specific sense of Paul's point. Verse 33 is a citation from the first half of Isaiah. There's really two verses from Isaiah that that Paul just sticks together. In Isaiah, the the whole first section, chapters 1 to 39, they're held together by this theme of trust. Some have even called Isaiah the Paul of the Old Testament. He, He talked so much about faith, about trust, about reliance. Israel is faced with this threat of foreign invaders. And Israel has to decide, okay, will we trust God to deliver us? Will we obey his commands and trust him to deliver us? Or will we depend on our alliances with foreign nations? In other words, will we trust God or will we trust human resources? And God tells them through the prophet, if you will regard me as holy, if you will put your trust in me, I will be that sanctuary. I will be your refuge and you will not be put to shame. But if you reject me, if you trust instead in the nations, I'll be a stone that causes stumbling and a rock that makes you fall. I can either be your deliverance or I can be your downfall. And Paul is saying Israel in his day, they're just like Israel in Isaiah's day. They trust their own resources instead of exercising faith in God. So because Israel thought, okay, we can secure salvation through the law. We we can obtain God's blessing and God's restoration through the law. They stumbled over the solution that God had actually given them to bring about his kingdom and his reign. They, They just trusted too highly in their own abilities and got too fixated on their own purposes, thought too lowly of their own need, and they missed what God was doing. So we must surrender any human presumption. And then lastly, we must surrender our personal performance. This is where Paul comes into chapter 10, but he really is continuing the same topic, the same contrast, the same themes. Now notice, though, he does pause to make once again this personal remark in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire... And prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So he goes, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that brings grief to my heart. It's a nice reminder that when Paul discusses theology, when he discusses doctrine, it's not just a classroom discussion. They're ideas with real-life consequences, real-life payoff. And Paul here reminds us that because Israel is stumbling down the path, His burden is to pray for them. He longs for their salvation. He does not view them as his enemies. He views them as his people. And he longs to see them make it across the finish line. He doesn't discuss their state with a sense of superiority, as if he figured it out and they should know better. Why aren't they doing the right thing? No sense of superiority. He knows he has received mercy. And so he prays that they might receive it as well. And then he tells us one more time, here's why they need mercy. Here's why they need to be saved. Verse 2, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. 
And notice even here, kind of in line with this theme of humility, Paul is able to say, okay, Israel, I will commend you for what you do well. But I have to tell you the truth about where you've gone wrong. And he acknowledges, Israel, you're zealous for God. You're tying in with an Old Testament theme. And the Old Testament commends different characters for their zeal. Remember Phineas when he stopped the plague? Elijah there on Mount Carmel applauded for their zeal. That they sought to keep Israel faithful to God. Pure from sin, particularly when there was oppression or when there were foreign thoughts, uh, foreign threats. That theme continues even in the period between the Old and New Testaments. One of the Jewish freedom fighters, Mattathias, he, he quotes from those Old Testament passages, or he at least echoes them when he says, Israel, come, join me, let's resist these Greek oppressors with zeal for God. And it's a zeal that Paul himself manifested when he tried to persecute followers of Jesus. I mean, Israel was zealous. They thought they were doing God's service and trying to keep the law. But Paul quickly adds, that zeal is not according to knowledge. That zeal has become misguided. And again, why? It isn't working with the full picture of what God is doing. Over time, the zeal of those who wanted to keep Israel pure, it began to develop traditions. Traditions that would ensure that purity. Here's where you get the origin of the groups that would grow into the Pharisees. Something that started really well, but got off track because it began to devise these human solutions. All right, This is what we can do to advance God's program. This is how we can secure God's blessing. And human solutions blind us to what God really values. We start following agendas or become compliant to agendas other than God's own. And we lose sight of the gospel. That's what happened to Paul's countrymen for the most part in his day. And so he writes in verse 3, Since they did not know the righteousness of God, and since they sought to establish their own, they did not submit... To God's righteousness. So here's Israel just zealously obeying the God, obeying the law, using their performance to show we are the people of God. But in all this zeal, they didn't see what God was doing and they didn't submit to it. And we asked, okay, well, what, what was God doing? What is this righteousness of God that they didn't submit to? Isaiah 46, 13 promised, I am bringing my righteousness near, it is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant my salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Here, righteousness probably being used in a really broad sense to include God's salvation. When when he arises and fulfills his purposes, when he arises to save his people, Israel's hope, the, the very thing they were hoping for, they didn't see. Why? Because as we've often considered, God's purpose of salvation also included the nations. In Isaiah 42, we read, God's chosen servant will bring justice to the nations. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. God says, I'm going to arise in the last days, and I'm going to rule over these nations. I'm going to fulfill my promises, but here's how I'm going to do it. Through the servant Jesus. He will be faithful. He will do everything the law commands. 
and yet he will also die for the sins of those who break the law. He will fulfill all the things he has to do. He'll be the faithful one. And then he will remake and reshape and regather God's people. And somehow a whole nation prepared throughout their history for this glorious outcome missed it. And why? Because as we've seen in this passage today, they got too fixated on their own agendas. Too fixated on their own works. Too fixated on their own goodness. Too fixated on their own identity. Too fixated on their own traditions. Zealous, yes, but based partly on what God committed. A a picture just out of focus. And it caused them to miss the goal entirely. And so what is the solution? Paul tells us in verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Why does Israel need to be saved? Because they've gotten off track. What then is the solution to that promise? Christ, the culmination of the law. For them to see what God was doing all along. What he was doing through the law, yes. And what he was doing through the whole great history of salvation, sending his son, Jesus. Where we find righteousness for everyone who believes. A right standing with God. Inclusion in the people of God. Everything that Israel wants, but is missing. And everything that Gentiles need, but may not be seeking, God gives it to us in Christ. So it's a nice reminder that at the end of the day, Jesus is at the center of everything that God is doing. And and once you put that lens on, then everything falls into place. Then everything starts to make sense. That is, friends, the real core of the Christian faith. That is what God's people can unite around. That is what God's people can cling to. That is what makes sense then of all of the scriptures, of the whole counsel of God. A place where the church can focus for its renewal and its reformation and its mission. Something that can give you hope in your life and purpose and meaning. Because God has come to restore life, come to save life. In the person of Jesus. This he can even help us when we read the Bible. That it's not just this unintelligible book and and history and genealogies and, and, and what is it doing? It's all telling a story of Jesus. So trying to find how it all points to him gives us this focus for our lives and for our service to God. So what is it in your life? It could be anything. But what is it that might stand in the way of obtaining that Jesus. Be quick to surrender it. When we started today, I mentioned cross-country. I remember running a race in high school. And right at the end of the race, there was this place where you could go down one of two paths. And they had put a spotter there to tell you which path to go down. And they stopped paying attention when I got to that point, And I went down the wrong path. As soon as they saw it, they began to yell at me, and I turned around and got on the right path, but somebody passed me during uh, that moment. Now, maybe if I had paid a little better attention, I would have remembered that. But at the same time, there was a spotter there who didn't point me down the right path. 
and didn't show me the right way to go. Friends, the beauty of Jesus Christ is he's the culmination of the law. He shows you the right way to go. He tells you which path to go down. He is where everything comes together. So don't miss him. Don't take your eyes off him. Don't stumble on the path. You look at him and he will show you the right way. So let's give thanks to God for his grace. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ, the culmination of the law, the goal of everything that you have been doing. And the way through which you do capture the nations for obedience by faith to Jesus as Lord. So I pray for all of us this morning that we would know that Lord Jesus, that we would know his grace, that we would acknowledge him as Lord and follow his ways. I pray we love the story of scripture and that we would love the Jesus of that story. And that we would live by faith and that we would live by his grace. That we pursue him in our lives. That, that all of our lives would be a witness to him and that we as your people here would witness to his grace. So thank you for the people of God this morning. Again, forgive us of our sins. Help us to follow Christ. Pray for any in our assembly or families and for our community also that don't know this Christ, you would draw them to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.